Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Atlantis Ocean Podcast, the podcast that covers everything going on in the vast world of ocean biodiversity. New Atlantis is tackling the twin challenges of biodiversity loss and climate change by aligning community, government, industry, and individual benefit with the improving ecological health of our oceans. I'm JJ Ramberg. Today, I get to chat with one of the extraordinary women in ocean conservation. Frida Lara is the scientific coordinator for ORCAS, the Marine Protected Area in Baja, California, as well as a fierce defender of sharks. Frida was recently featured in Vogue under the headline, Meet the Women Fighting to Protect Sharks in Mexico's Sea of Cortez. Hi, Frida. Hello, JJ. How are you? It must have been so fun to see your name under that headline in Vogue. I loved it. It was funny because we had the chance to work with these guys and there was a famous photographer coming and taking portraits of us. And I'm sure it was an interesting experience for them too. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, for you, this is an everyday occurrence, but for everyone else getting to be around sharks, I actually have my own experience with that, which I'll tell you about in a second. But before we get there, just tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get interested in ocean conservation? How did you come to love sharks so much? Well, uh, since I was very young, I always wanted to be a marine biologist. Uh, My dad actually wanted to be an oceanographer. And because of life, he ended up uh, studying history. So he passed his passion to me, I think. And since I was little, I was always going for holidays in areas that there was ocean, no? And when I was 17, I decided to study marine biology. And since then, I've been working in different projects. And during my master's degree, I had the chance to go to the Seychelles and start working on sharks. And yes, I always found fascinating all the evolutionary aspects of sharks and their importance for the ecosystem. So... Yeah, since then, it has been like over 10 years of working on sharks and the way that we can protect them. All right, we're going to get back to sharks in a second. Before we do, just tell me a little bit about ORCAS and what you do there. Yes. So ORCAS is an NGO that was founded by women with different professions. So I'm a scientist, but we also have some people expert on communication, on education, on tourism. And the idea was to work with coastal communities here in Mexico and find uh, sustainable alternatives. So the first project that we started was a Proyecto Tiburón, shark project. And the idea was to start working with local communities that were currently catching sharks and finding other ways for them to get an income. So here in Mexico, There are some communities that rely uh, 100% on the catches of sharks. And they were pretty open to start looking for other alternatives. So it's not like just telling them that it's bad. It's like, okay, we know it's not something very good for the environment. And it's also not good for you because sharks are getting less and less. Like their populations are reducing in the last years. And working together with them was uh, pretty inspiring, no? Because um, many people is like, no, we cannot stop 
or we cannot work in protection because what are the poor communities are going to do now? And it's like, no, because they rely on these resources. We have to protect them. We have to find a way for them to find a nice way to use conservation in their own favor. No? And I think the communities now understand the value of it and understand why they should work on, on finding new activities that are protecting their ecosystems, but also helping them to get an income. Well, this is one of the big challenges with conservation is that a lot of people, livelihoods, the way they feed their family, right? The way they put a roof over their head is dependent upon things that hurt the environment right now. And so it's really hard to tell somebody who's worried about putting food on the table, hey, you can't do this anymore because it's hurting the very big picture of the environment. We all know if I had to feed my kids, that would be the number one thing that I'm thinking about. So how hard was it and how did you go about changing people's attitudes and helping them find new things to do? Well, one interesting thing in Mexico, just to give you a context, is that in a good day, a shark fisherman, an artisanal fisherman, catch around 10 sharks. And if we compare that in terms of like what an industrial fishing boat can get in one day, they can get even 100 or 200 sharks. So the level of impact of the artisanal fishermen for sharks are way less than the industrial fishing. And in the way that they fish here in Mexico, they use a technique that is called simpleras. And basically our drum lines is a bag with weight, like it's, it's like a sack of sand, then a line that is like over thousand meters, and then a big buoy on the surface with one hook and a line. And in this hook, they put a little bit of bait, like a skipjack, and they just catch one shark in each of these lines. And they have around 30 lines of these ones, but many times they don't get anything on these lines. So it's like one of the most selective ways to catch sharks actually. However, they have seen the reduction of sharks. Like before, could go close to their house and catch sharks next door. Now they have to drive 30 miles offshore, sometimes with bad weather, in order to really get the same amount of sharks. So they have seen the reduction of sharks. And in sometimes, in some cases, they go out, they spend fuel, they spend time, and they don't even get any sharks anymore. So it's, it's a business that is reducing, it's a business that is not profitable anymore. And now they see the evidences that sharks were more alive than dead. And hopefully now we are in a moment where they can turn the tide and really work on the conservation of these sharks and the conservation of this biodiversity and be the ones talking, you know, like in Mexico, the communities, the coastal communities are very important for the government. So if the communities ask the government to work on the protection of these resources, it's super powerful. So we try not to be the voice all the time. We try to make them talk, to put their voices loud, express and show to the government and all other countries that they have necessities and they have been living a situation that is not fair, that has been putting industrial fishing first and then them. And in this case, we think if they are able to protect their own resources and take some measurements to really reduce the effect of fishing, I'm sure this area is going to 
explode in terms of biodiversity. It's so rich. We have, for example, so many species of whales, dolphins. We have this, I, I, just before the interview, I was telling you that we have now one of the largest aggregations of fish. We have 10,000 mobile arrays gathering together in some areas. So this biodiversity is very special and it's still around here. So if they're able to get benefit of taking people out and seeing these things and also finding other alternatives to stop reducing the impacts or their activities, I'm sure they are going to have all the benefits. There's a, a long-term trade. So stop fishing sharks, stop catching sharks, leave nature alone, create this amazing preserve where biodiversity thrives. And as a result, on the other side, there's tourism. Exactly. I, I believe that's what you're talking about. What do you do in the meantime, though, for somebody who is dependent on shark fishing for their livelihood right now before the longer term benefits come in? How do you make that switch? Well, the first step is capacitation because they have been living on this profession for all their lives. Like they remember going fishing since they were seven or 10 years old. And it's hard sometimes because there is a language uh, limitation. Most of the tourists doesn't speak Spanish. There is also some things about how they treat people, they treat tourism. And it's a lot of capacitation of make them feel confident that they are able to do this new profession. No? So, and it's also important that they never lose their own values and their own identity on this transition. So it's a process. Uh, sometimes tourism, as we all learn with uh, the pandemic, is not going to be the only solution. And tourism also can be a threat. If we don't do tourism in a conscious way, with um, considering the good practices and the capacity of the ecosystem, tourism can be bad. So they are learning from the beginning and we are sharing visions of how we think the future should look like and trying to set an example of being the leaders of their communities looking for conscious ways of getting an income, but at the same time, showing to the government, showing to other people like you or people in international conferences that Mexico is doing a big change, that people in this country is ready to make these efforts in order to conserve their own resources. And I love the way you all work is that the solutions really come up from the community themselves. It's not like you're walking in and saying, do this, yeah. but really working with people so that you're amplifying solutions that come from the community, come from the people who truly do care, of course, about the land and the ocean that they're living near. Exactly. I think that's the way is that they already had bad experiences with NGOs. There were some experiences where NGOs came, they took data and left, and without any efficient communication campaigns, then they stopped, like, for example, mobile fisheries without explaining them that that was about to come. And they felt very betrayed because if they knew a little bit before that that was coming, they will get prepared, but they never mm -hmm. heard that. And it was very difficult for us in order to get their trust because they had really bad experiences before. 
conservation hasn't been uh, perfect for many times for many reasons. And now it's like how you can change that little little things that can make people to be more confident and being able to really create a project together. For example, we are doing all these efforts and our donors were very happy about the proposal, but they were like, okay, Frida, you are doing all these big efforts in order to reduce shark fishing. But if you don't show me with data that the ecosystem is recovering, it's not gonna be very impactful for others, no? So it was very important to be able to to start working on a monitoring program where we could assess how is the shark population now and we can compare it in the future. So with the community, we are taking some actions to be able to take samples of the sharks to try to determine the number of sharks that we have around the, the area. So in the future, we can compare that with what we have now and see if all these huge efforts that they are doing are going to have an impactful result. You said earlier a shark alive is worth significantly more than a shark that has been killed. Explain that. Well, it has been proved already that, for example, in Mexico, a dead shark is used for one thing is to export the, the fins to Asia, to Hong Kong, because there is a big demand for uh, shark fin soup. So the fins are getting extracted here in Mexico. The product is getting extracted here. It's sent it to San Diego, and then it flies to China. The other thing that they use is the meat. The meat is created in machaca, that is dry meat. It's salted, and then uh, it's used to prepare like kind of like tacos and things like that. However, the value of that shark is really, really low. It's like sometimes these sharks are less than $150 for a big adult shark. Whereas when you are doing ecotourism or diving with sharks, each person in average is paying around $150 or $200 per day per person. So these sharks that are alive are being seen by people every day. So instead of really getting the benefit of a shark once, because once it's dead, you don't get any more benefit, you have that shark alive and people is expecting to see them. And sometimes you don't even see them because the ocean is like that. But that expectation of people having the possibility of seeing a shark is enough to give a profit to the communities. The only thing is that we have to make sure that the local communities have the priority on providing these services. Right. So that the revenue actually goes to the local community. It's not going to someone else. And also, I love how you explain this, which is a really direct comparison. $150 once, the shark dead, or $150 multiple times as people keep seeing the shark. But beyond that, and this is a little harder to price, which is why I love the way you did it, but there's the price of what the shark does in the ocean, what what it provides in the ocean, exactly. and how important that is to the world that we live in and to even being able to breathe. Can you talk about that at all? Of course. Yes, that's one of the main reasons of why I study sharks is because I wanted to make a big change in terms of the conservation of the ocean. And one of the most direct ways to do it is to work with the top predators. 
So sharks are on the top of the food chain. They are able to control the ecosystem and they control other species that are their prey. So if we are able to protect the sharks, then the sharks may be possible to control, for example, invasive species, or if there is a virus or a sickness, the sharks make sure that they eat this as a prey. It's an easy catch. <laughs> and they control these invasive species. For example, in the Caribbean side of Mexico, we had the invasion of the scorpion fish. If in that moment we had a healthy ecosystem with lots of sharks, probably the scorpion fish wouldn't get that successful in that area because mm -hmm. the sharks will be able to control these populations. And we have seen that in other areas in the Caribbean that still have sharks, the scorpion fish hasn't created the same impact. So uh, sharks are controlling the productivity of the ocean. And if we make sure that sharks are alive, other uh, species that are commercially important can also get the benefits. So if you have a balanced ecosystem that is productive, it's also providing you more food, it's also providing you more attraction for tourism, and it's helping you to regulate all these processes that are happening in the ocean. As someone who studies sharks, I have to imagine that you just get a lot of, like, you're crazy. How do you go swim with sharks? Because you're really countering, I mean, especially for my age, right? Jaws came out when I was a kid. So yeah. you are countering, you know, years and years and years of people thinking that sharks are the enemy and sharks are terrible and sharks are so scary without thinking about the importance of sharks. How do you deal with that? Well, it is true. Uh, sharks uh, have been for many years, misunderstand, you know, like there were these top predators, these killing machines that people were so scared to get in the ocean and swim there without knowing if they were getting attacked by a shark. Now we understand that it's really, really hard to get even interacting with sharks. Like the numbers of sharks are so low. In some places, the populations have been reduced in 70% or even 90%, or we have already some local extinct species like the great hammerheads that used to be here. They are not here anymore. We have been talking to the shark fishermen, and they say the last time they heard about great hammerheads in the Gulf of California was 40 years ago. So some species are gone completely. And it's really hard to find sharks. As I was telling you, today I'm going in an expedition, and I feel like I'm a... Uh, detective looking for something that is almost gone. So it's going to yeah. be really hard to find hammerheads in the Gulf of California because many of them are gone. However, now that we understand more that the sharks are pretty smart, that they don't really tend to go and attack humans. Most of the attacks that we have heard in the past is because it's a mistake. So sometimes sharks attack from the deep, they think they, they are attacking a sea lion or a seal in these areas where surfers are, are swimming. And when the shark bites, normally it's an exploratory bite, it's just once, but because they are so powerful, we tend to have big wounds or big bleedings, and then it's really hard to make people to survive. But it's just one bite, and when they realize that it's not what they were looking for, they just stop and swim away. So it's, it's more like a very unlucky mistake. But now we know if we compare it, 
There are other things, for example, mosquitoes kill much more humans than sharks. The chances of having other risks like a car accident or anything like that is way more dangerous than a shark. In average, there are around five shark attacks in the world every year. So it's pretty mm. rare. And the thing is that it gets viral very easily. So once there is a, an event, people in the press talk about it and it gets like everywhere. And sometimes you see news that are from previous years, but because the press wants to get the attention of all the audience, they repeat talking about the same accidents. So it's more something about our interests than actually the, how common these, these incidents are. A bunch of years ago, I used to work for NBC News and I did a story with Ocean Ramsey, who I'm sure yeah. you know, in Hawaii, where we went swimming with sharks, no cages, in Oahu. And it took a lot, right? There's just such a fear that was put into most of us from such a young age about sharks that, I mean, I just remember going in the water, seeing the shark and thinking, really, we're just going to go jump in the water right now with all these sharks around? That seems so counterintuitive. And then swimming with them changed everything. It truly changed everything for me. All those things that you're saying now make sense. And I felt it because I was in the water with these like truly magnificent creatures right around me that I've been so scared of and then not at all. And then I brought my kids <laughs> a few years later to go do the same thing. And people thought, oh, you're crazy. You're bringing your tiny kids to go swim with sharks. And it was, as you said, they didn't care about me. It was much more me watching them than them watching me. But as we were just talking about it, it is a lot to counter the years and years of psychology, the media just saying that sharks are scary and sharks are bad. Yes, to try exactly. and understand how sharks are important. Tell me about some of the biggest success stories that you've been a part of. We are in a process of changing that mind. The first thing, obviously, is people is more aware about the importance of sharks and why we have to recover those populations in this area. When I was doing my PhD, I was able to work and collaborate with researchers enabled to expand the Revillagigedo National Park. So when I started my PhD, the protection area was only five nautical miles around the islands of this archipelago. And I remember going during my PhD to these places and seeing helicopters flying over us, looking for the big school of tuna. And I was surprised to see that it was a lot. And after that, five years ago, uh, the Mexican government expanding the protection of the area and now created the largest marine reserve in North America. And now it's a big polygon that covers all the islands and the waters in the middle because it was uh, very important to show that sharks and mantas and all the pelagics were traveling between the islands. And once they were getting out of these five nautical miles, they were getting exposed for fishing. So proving that to the government and expanding this big rectangle was something very successful and now is one of these great examples of how highly and fully protected areas can work very effectively and we have seen that if we can do the same in the gulf considering the artisanal fishermen but stopping the industrial fishing we are going to see some big changes 
So we know that, for example, five years ago, we started seeing more and more mantas in the Gulf of California. For 20 years, we didn't see any mantas. And now some of the big animals are coming back. We don't know exactly why. We still don't have enough information. But there are some signs of recovery or some signs that the connectivity, the movement of these big species can really create this concept of a spillover. So when you protect an area and it's getting more healthy and successful, then the species have the chance to start traveling further from the protection. And the industrial fishing can get the benefits just outside of the polygon. So we are seeing the effect of that. And hopefully soon we can start seeing more and more species in the Gulf of California too. Do you feel like people's attitudes have changed from when you started working in this field to now? For sure. Just to give you an example, two days ago, we had a big meeting with tourist uh, operators and capitans because there is a situation here with the orcas. I don't know if you heard about it. But all this like social media is talking about swimming with orcas in the Gulf and it's creating a big mess. Like as I was telling you, tourism is a solution, but also can be a problem. And there were mm -hmm. 35 boats chasing orcas in the Gulf. And we get to meet all these people and talk about it. And now we are trying to find solutions with the community in order to improve the interactions. So I see a lot of people getting super active in terms of the protection, in terms of creating these discussion tables where people can approach the government and trying to find solutions for the Gulf. And hopefully soon we're going to see the effects of these organizations, no? how people can auto-regulate and find solutions so the government just responds to these necessities. What do you think gets people most excited? There's so many messages that you can talk about. So you can talk about there's an economic solution, there's a, a health solution, there's a biodiversity solution. What gets people most excited when you talk about the work that you're doing? I think, for example, I really enjoy showing that science can make a big difference in terms of decision-making. Involving mm. the locals, having them so interested. Like yesterday, we went out to look for some species, collecting some samples, and seeing the fishermen like taking the plankton net taking the samples, watching it, and getting them so excited. For me, that's a clear message of how the local communities can get connected and be the ones, no, the ambassadors of their own oceans. Because we, as scientists or people, we are just visitors of these waters. But they have been here for five generations, and they are the ones that have to think about the next generations. So having them involved in science, in conservation, and being able to talk and give interviews, for me, that's the most important part. Because, for example, I have friends in Colombia that were thinking about replicating something like this. And they were like, Frida, can you share some interviews of the fishermen? And I send them some links. And they show those links to the fishermen in Colombia. And they told me they completely got it. Because they saw a, a local fisherman in Mexico talking about conservation. And now they are convinced that they want to do the same in Colombia. So for me, like being able to communicate between coastal communities and inspire other fishermen in other areas is very, very powerful. Do you have any story that really touched you, a particular person? 
Well, <laughs> I'm very lucky to create stories almost in a daily basis, you know, like like yesterday being able to take these people out and seeing all this. For me, for example, it has been very powerful to take the sons of the shark fishermen to swim with mobulas for the first time or to swim with all this marine life that has been there for them for many years, but never had the chance to really get in the water with them because mm. all their traditions, no? So being able to be that person that makes them to interact and expose themselves to a new experience is very, very inspiring for me to be that person and, and being able to document that with my camera and take videos of them getting in the water is something that really changed their own way of seeing the ocean. No, Now is, I think, like the daughters of the Capitans are already thinking about being marine biologists. And, and I'm feeling super proud and happy that their role models have been changed. Wow. What about the science that you do? You are a marine biologist. You're a yeah. scientist. What kind of science are you doing in the waters near well, you? Well, obviously, sharks are our main focus right now. So we are taking genetic samples of different shark species that we can find in the area. This year, we were able to collect 230 samples from different shark species. And the idea is to start using this information to estimate the actual populations of sharks that we have here. We are deploying props, these baited cameras, in different points around the islands to see the species that we can find in the area. And we are also doing some tagging. So this year we were able to tag three mako sharks. And this was the first time that makos were tagged with satellite tags in this region. So seeing where they are going and how movements of sharks are overlapping with industrial fishing activity is very powerful for the government in Mexico. We need to find mm -hmm. relevant information that can be used for the NGOs, but also for the government to start taking decisions, you know? Like most of the industrial fishing that is working here are not even from this state. They are coming from states from the mainland in Mexico. And our people is thinking that we can limit their work and just let them work outside of our coastal areas. And that will benefit the local communities a lot. You need the science to inform policy. Exactly, exactly. If you can use all this science in order to create policy making, it's going to be very powerful. Do you remember the first time you saw a shark close up? And the first time was in actually in the Gulf of Mexico. I went to Alacranes Reef and I saw a bull shark. And first I was a little bit scared, but then it got all my interest and I was like trying to look for it. It was really far away, but I really enjoy it. And since then, I've been diving around the world looking for different species. I learned different techniques to monitor them. And yes, I, I feel very lucky to be able to, to work for their conservation. I was able to go to Panama when there was this big meeting for CITES, where 53 species of sharks just got added in the second appendix of CITES. So that means that sharks are able to get uh, fish, but the governments have to show that it's sustainable. 
So it's a huge step in child conservation because that means that countries need to invest more in their research and to really manage their populations better. What does the future hold for ORCAS? What are you all working on now? Well, I think we got into the point where we are more structured. We have work plans for the next years and we are getting more and more funds in order to be able to have bigger goals. So I'm looking forward for really collaborating with more scientists to have a community of researchers, volunteers, the community itself, to really start taking step forwards for the protection of the area in a more ordered and in the same page, like really working hand to hand, working for the same goal. And I think we are getting to the point of finding these solutions together. And what are you most hopeful about? I see the communities in Baja California Sur getting successful, finding a way where big investors work with them, not replacing them, and them being the ones that are the ambassadors of their own ecosystems and are the ones that are making sure that all that biodiversity that they have out there is safe and is healthy and is recovered. Frida, thank you. Thank you so much. I know you're, you have your backpack and you're ready to go get on a boat to sail down to La Paz. And so I appreciate you taking time before you go to talk to us. Best of luck looking for the sharks today. Thank you. Bye-bye. everyone so much for listening today we'd love to stay connected with you so please follow us on twitter you can join our new atlantis labs conversation on discord or if you have a comment about this particular episode you can leave it on good pods you can find all those links in our show description see you next time